Voices for Justice is a podcast that uses adult language and discusses sensitive and potentially triggering topics, including violence, abuse, and murder. This podcast may not be appropriate for younger audiences. All parties are innocent until proven guilty in a court of law. Some names have been changed or omitted per their request or for safety purposes. Listener discretion is advised. My name is Sarah Turney, and this is Voices for Justice. Today, I am discussing the case of Tara Calico. Tara went missing from Belen, New Mexico in 1988 while going on her daily bike ride. Tara's case captivated the nation when a Polaroid of a woman who many still believe is Tara was found the next year. This case has remained unsolved for decades, but Tara's case gained a lot of new interest nearly 20 years later. This is when the new sheriff stated that he believed he knew exactly what happened to Tara Calico, but he was unable to make an arrest due to the responsible parties being so well-connected. This case has been highly requested for quite some time, so I really wanted to dig in and see how we can help. If you aren't aware, I do have a form over on VoicesForJusticePodcast.com where you can submit case suggestions. I do look at every single one that you guys submit, and I'm trying to cover as many as possible. Before we dig into Tara's case, I have to give a huge shout-out to Melinda over at the podcast Vanished the Tara Calico Investigation. She partnered with Tara's sister Michelle to really dig into this case, including getting a ton of police records, police interviews, and conducting her own interviews. So if you want to learn even more about Tara's case after this episode, I highly recommend listening to Vanished, the Tara Calico Investigation, which is where I got a lot of information for this episode. Since Melinda began covering Tara's case, she's uncovered some pretty major things that I will discuss, but I think that's another reason why I was drawn to Tara's case. Melinda was just someone who knew Tara, wanted to help, and ended up making a real change in the case. I am always looking for examples of how you guys can impact these cases positively, and this is definitely one of those examples. But with all of that being said, this is the case of Tara Calico. This episode of Voices for Justice is brought to you by June's Journey. I'm pretty sure everyone here loves a good mystery, especially one with as many twists and turns as June's Journey. You get to step into the role of June Parker and search for hidden clues to uncover the mystery of her sister's murder. You engage your observation skills to quickly uncover key pieces of information that lead to chapters of mystery, danger, and romance. So what does that mean? Well, June's Journey is a hidden object mystery game. Essentially, you find hidden clues and uncover this mystery. But it's also more than that. You can customize your own luxurious estate island, you can join a detective club, and put your skills to the test in a detective league. I like that you can play totally alone, or if you want to play with other people, you can do that too. I find myself playing June's Journey in little breaks during the day, or most frequently at night before I go to bed. Whether you're craving a good mystery or just looking for an escape, I really do recommend June's Journey. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Tara Lee Calico was born on February 28, 1969 in New Mexico. Her parents, Patty and David, would eventually separate. Her mother, Patty, would later marry a man named John Dole. John Dole had a daughter from a previous relationship named Michelle. 
Tara, Patty, and John eventually settled together in Belen, New Mexico. Despite homicide rates actually being up quite a bit in 1988 in Belen, by all accounts, Belen was one of those small, tight-knit communities where everyone knew each other and each other's business. This will be important to remember as I tell you about Tara's case. Tara really seemed like the all-American girl. She was kind, popular, beautiful, and determined. By 1988, she was 19, dating her high school sweetheart, Jack Cole, who was previously the quarterback of their high school football team. Now, Tara was a sophomore at the University of New Mexico Valencia campus, studying psychology. She lived at home with her mother, Patty, and her stepfather, John, but she was extremely independent and extremely busy. Because Tara was so busy and aspired to do so many things, she was very organized and kept a strict schedule and made a ton of lists. This was to ensure she got everything that she wanted to get done, done. Some of Tara's activities included, of course, school, but she also had a job as a bank teller, and she enjoyed playing tennis and riding her bike. Now, she wasn't just a casual bike rider. Every morning, Tara rode her bike along Route 47 for a 35-mile round trip. This took her about two hours. Her mother, Patty Dole, had taken this exact ride with Tara in the past, but she actually ended up getting pretty freaked out when she felt that a motorist was kind of stalking them. So she stopped going with Tara. She also encouraged Tara to carry mace. But Tara kind of scoffed at her mom, thinking it was pretty silly and that she was being overprotective. That being said, to Tara's credit, like I mentioned, she was extremely independent and she was very smart. She'd actually gotten a flat tire on her bike the week prior, and she ended up walking the bike home for about seven miles. Patty says that many people stopped to offer Tara a ride home, but she refused. Patty has made statements that this is just kind of what Tara was like. Although she was extremely kind, she was aware of the dangers. She was also kind of used to being harassed by men, so she was more apt to ignore someone than stop and talk to them. On the morning of Tuesday, September 20th, 1988, Tara set out for her daily bike ride on her mother's pink Huffy mountain bike. Tara's bike still had a flat tire. Tara also left a little bit later than usual this morning at about 9.30 a.m. She had a full day ahead of her, including a date to play tennis with her boyfriend Jack at 12.30 and a class at 4 p.m. She told her mother that she should be back by 11.30, but if she wasn't back by 12, to please come and get her. We have to remember that this is 1988 and no one had a cell phone. Also in the spirit of 1988, Tara grabs her Walkman, which has a cassette tape of Boston inside and proceeds on her daily bike ride. 11.30 comes and goes, and then it's noon, so Patty wakes up her husband John to tell him that she's going to go get Tara. Patty drives Tara's usual path. This path spans from their neighborhood down Route 47 to the train tracks where Tara would typically turn around and start heading back home, but there's no sign of Tara. Patty does think that this is a little strange, but she figures that she probably just missed Tara, so she heads home expecting to find her there. But Tara isn't there and neither is her bike. While Patty's at home, Tara's boyfriend Jack calls to confirm that Tara's on her way to their tennis date. At this point, everyone assumes that Tara's bike ride is probably just running a little late, and that she has to be on her way home. Patty goes out and drives the route again. She gets back from the second trip around 12.35pm. Now Patty's beginning to worry, so she starts driving around for a third time. 
At about 1.10 p.m., Patty is back home. She immediately wakes up John to tell him that Tara is missing. A few minutes later, Jack Cole calls again. They tell him that Tara is missing, and he's at their home within 15 minutes to help search for her. One of Tara's friends, Bernard, also comes to help search for her as well. Bernard heads out on his bike to search the route, while Patty, John, and Tara's boyfriend, Jack, retrace the path as well in a vehicle. This is when they start to talk to some of the people along Route 47. First, they speak with three men building a fence post. They hadn't seen Tara, but they also went to lunch not long before that. They were helpful, cooperative, and said that they'd keep an eye out for her. Patty, John, and Jack decide that they should probably split up so they can cover more ground. Around 2.30pm, Patty stops at the entrance to the JFK campgrounds along Tara's route. Here, she sees three men standing around a dirty white or gray truck. On the back was a homemade camper. They're all just kind of standing around drinking beer. She asks them if they've seen Tara and they say no. They also add that they've been there since 11am. According to Patty, these three men are ultimately pretty defensive and dismissive. At approximately 3pm, Patty heads back home again. Here, she calls local hospitals and the Valencia County Sheriff's Office. The police agree that Tara most likely didn't disappear on her own accord, and to the credit of the sheriff's office, within eight hours of Tara failing to return home, her information is entered into the NCIC. Patty tells Jack, John, and Bernard about the three men at the JFK campgrounds, and they think the story's a little weird, so they go out to speak to the men themselves around 3.15pm. The guys are still super defensive, but pretty much told the same story. Around 4.30 p.m., the Valencia County Sheriff's Office steps in, and an officer takes Patty Dole back to the JFK campgrounds to speak to the three men. They're still there, but the truck is parked in a different spot now. They tell the same story. The police and Tara's friends and family continue searching for her until 2 a.m., now the morning of Wednesday, September 21st. At 6 a.m., Patty wakes up to search the route for Tara again. This is when she finds Tara's Boston tape on the side of the road. Ultimately, two sets of bike tracks believed to be Tara's would be found about a mile apart from each other. These tracks would indicate that someone abruptly swerved and that a bike was possibly dragged. They would also recover parts of Tara's Walkman, an old Milwaukee beer can, and parts of a bike reflector near the entrance of the JFK campgrounds. The bike itself has never been recovered. Air searches were called off that day due to heavy storms in the area, but the ground search continued. The search for Tara Calico lasted a week and a half. It included the Valencia Sheriff's Department, the Valencia County Sheriff's Posse, the New Mexico State Police, Army, Navy, Marine, ROTC, and Reserve Units from Albuquerque, Boleyn Fire and Rescue, Boleyn Police Department, New Mexico Department of Game and Fish, active and reserve Air Force units, and hundreds of volunteers. They covered hundreds of square miles, but they weren't able to find much. Tara's case is complicated, and honestly, at times, quite confusing. Because we have so many different statements coming from so many different time periods, I feel like it's almost impossible to stay in chronological order and to be able to clearly explain what happened in this case. So before I tell you about the many witness statements that will be a huge driving force in this investigation, I want to fast forward a bit and tell you about some photos that were found that many people believe might be of Tara. 
On June 15, 1989, a woman in Port St. Joe, Florida was at a convenience store. As she's walking into the store, she sees a white van in the parking lot. The driver appeared to be a Caucasian male in his 30s and had a mustache. When this woman left the store, the van and the man were gone. But in the spot where he was parked, she found a Polaroid picture. This picture shows a young woman and a young boy. They both have their hands behind their backs, presumably bound, and both have tape over their mouths. They're laying in the back of a van with some blankets and pillows on the ground. The young woman is Caucasian with brown hair and what looks like pretty long legs. The young boy is also Caucasian with blonde-looking hair. Both look like they're in distress. Next to the young woman is a book titled My Sweet Audrina by V.C. Andrews. On the spine of the book, it appears that a phone number is written, but not all of the numbers are legible in the picture. Experts would determine that this could be one of 300 possible phone numbers. The woman who found the picture turned it into local police. They did set up roadblocks and look for the van, but the driver's never been identified. This Polaroid was not immediately tied to Tara's case. It wouldn't be until it was featured on a TV show called A Current Affair that the connection was made. This is after a friend of John Dole saw the photo and immediately called him to say that the young woman looked like Tara. Now, there's a lot of debate over whether or not this is Tara in the photo. And honestly, I don't know if it is or not. But what I find to be incredibly interesting about this photo is that another set of parents from New Mexico came forward to say that they believe that the boy in the photo could be their missing son. This would be Michael Henley. Michael went missing a few months before Tara did, when he was turkey hunting with his father in the Zuni Mountains, south of their home in New Mexico. Michael went missing about 75 miles from where Tara went missing. So both Michael's parents and Patty traveled to Florida to see this Polaroid in person. Michael's mother and Patty are convinced that it's their children in this photo. Michael's father was a bit more hesitant, but he said that he couldn't deny the striking resemblance. Patty would state that it wasn't only the resemblance that made her think it was Tara. She pointed out that the woman in the photo had the same scar that Tara did on her leg from a car accident. She also stated that My Sweet Audrina by V.C. Andrews was Tara's favorite book. I think a lot of people might just think that Patty was being hopeful, but I think there's something to be said for a mother being able to identify their own child. The photo was sent to Polaroid to gather more information. They were able to determine that the photo had to have been taken after May of 1989. In order to determine if this was really Tara or not in the Polaroid, it was studied by Scotland Yard, the FBI, and the Los Alamos National Laboratory. Scotland Yard determined that the young woman in the photo was most likely Tara, citing that an ear comparison and hairline comparison were completed. The FBI, however, said that their results were inconclusive, and the Los Alamos National Laboratory said that they didn't believe the woman in the photo was Tara. So we have yes, no, and inconclusive. However, Tara's living relatives are still adamant that that is Tara in the photograph. In 1990, Michael Henley's remains were found about seven miles from where he went missing. It was determined that he most likely died from exposure, so many people believe it was not Michael in the photograph. I think it is important to note here that the Port St. Joe police chief, Carl Richter, 
said that they'd received dozens of tips about who might be in that Polaroid, but Michael and Tara's were the only credible tips that they'd received. Officially, the people in the photograph have never been identified. In addition to this now infamous Polaroid, there were two other photos found that are theorized to possibly be Tara. One picture was found near a construction site in Montecito, California. The photo was blurry, but it shows a woman's face with tape over her mouth. Behind the woman is a blue and white striped piece of fabric, similar to what was seen in the Polaroid of the people in the van. Patty Dole believes that this is Tara in the photo. Experts determined that the photo could not have been taken before June 1989. Tara's sister Michelle said that there is a striking resemblance, and she won't rule this photo out. She adds that they've looked at many more photos that have been ruled out, but this one remains in question. The third photograph shows a woman and a man on an Amtrak train. The woman is bound and wearing thick black glasses. Patty Dole isn't sure if this is Tara or not, or even just some cruel joke. Neither the man or the woman have ever been identified. Experts have determined that this photo could not have been taken before February 1990. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Now, let's talk about these witness statements, because there's a lot to go over. In the days after Tara went missing, authorities were able to gather some pretty solid information to determine her last steps. Let's start with the statements from a group of four hunters who saw Tara that day. This group consisted of three men and a child. They all tell the same story, but the driver of the vehicle saw a bit more than the others, so we're going to focus on him. Somewhere between 11 a.m. and 12 p.m., these four hunters were driving down the Highway 47, coming from Corona where they'd just been hunting. They try to pull into JFK campground to discharge their rifles, but they can't get in because there's a truck blocking their way. The truck is described as an old white Ford pickup, possibly from the 50s, with a camper shell. The hunters try to get the driver of the truck's attention, but he's staring really intensely at something. So the hunters just decide to drive down to the next entrance of the campground a bit down the road. This is when they first see a woman presumed to be Tara biking along the side of the road. They mention that no one was following her. The hunters make it to the second entrance of JFK campgrounds. They unload their rifles and they get back on the road. Shortly after, the driver sees Tara in his rearview mirror. He also sees what looks like a white truck driving behind Tara. He's not sure if anyone else was in the truck or even if the truck was completely on the road, saying it could have been off to the side a bit. But he added that the driver looked older, and the way that he was following Tara, he assumed that it could be her father. So assuming that Tara was probably fine, the hunters go on about their day. The hunters would later travel with a member of law enforcement to the exact area where they saw Tara near the entrance of the JFK campgrounds. This area is extremely close to where some of the pieces of Tara's Walkman and bike reflector were found. The statements from the hunters would remain consistent over the years. Two of these hunters did undergo hypnosis, 
the results of these sessions are missing from Tara's case file. But the driver would tell police in a later interview that it didn't work, and he wasn't able to remember anything new. The second witness statement I'd like to discuss is that of Ishmael De La Rosa. His statement is extremely detailed. Ishmael says that he was on the road that morning around 11.30am or 12pm. He was on his way to Cottonwood Farms to pick up some new calves, and also on his way to the vet to get an autopsy for a calf that had recently died. He was in a hurry, because his wife arranged the appointment with the vet kind of last minute, and if he missed the appointment, he wouldn't be able to get in that day. Ishmael was pretty concerned about the death of this calf, because if it died from disease, it could spread to the other animals. So getting to this appointment was very important to him, and he was kind of rushing to get there. As he was driving along Route 47, he saw a light gray, almost primer-colored-looking 1950s Ford truck with a camper on the back. At first, he thought it was parked along the side of the road, but as he got closer, he realized it wasn't parked, just driving extremely slow. According to Ishmael, they were driving as slow as possibly 10 to 15 miles per hour. As he approached the truck, he saw what he thought was a black dog running from the side of the truck into the cab. But as he got closer, he realized that it was definitely just a human running crouched over. Either way, Ishmael is pretty annoyed that they're going so slow. Now, Route 47 is a two-lane highway, and there was a bit of traffic that day. So Ishmael spent a few miles looking for an opening to try to pass the truck. In this time, he sees a woman, presumed to be Tara, biking about 40 feet in front of the truck. Like the hunters, Ishmael assumes that the person in the truck must be Tara's father. Eventually, Ishmael sees an opening and goes to pass the truck. While he's passing by, he's able to get a very good look at the driver. He says that he was possibly middle-aged, a Caucasian male, with hair that was bright red in the sun. The man had bloodshot eyes, and his face was puffy like he might have been drinking the night before. He also notices a large scar on his left eye that spanned to his temple. Ishmael never saw the passenger of the vehicle, but he noticed a bunch of freshly pressed khaki shirts hanging in the back of the truck. Ishmael's a little conflicted. The way that the man was staring at Tara made him think that this probably wasn't her father anymore. But he continued along to get his errands done. Ishmael tells police that another reason that he wasn't particularly worried was because there were so many people around. He saw two men in a field dressed in sports coats, two cars on either side of the road, one black and one white, with a man in a white shirt leaning up against the white car. He also saw a car that appeared to have been broken down with the hood up. There were five people surrounding this car. Next to this possibly broken down car were three women playing golf on a nearby course. So he thinks that this is kind of weird, but he also thinks there's so many people around. What could possibly happen? When Ishmael is all finished up with his errands and driving back home around 4pm, he hears a report on the radio about a woman riding a bike that went missing from a nearby area in the mountains. Since they made no mention of the highway, he assumes this was an entirely different person. When he gets home, his wife tells him about the same report. Again, he doesn't tie this to Tara, but he thinks, why would a woman go up into an area like that alone? A few days later, Ishmael's having coffee with a friend and he brings this up to the friend, explaining his confusion about why this woman would be riding her bike up in the mountains, in this area where most men wouldn't travel alone. This is when his friend corrects him, and explains that the woman was last seen along the highway. Then it hits Ishmael. This is the woman he saw on September 20th. 
The next day, he calls the police and speaks with an officer named Ray Flores. According to Ishmael, he wasn't particularly interested in taking his report. Eventually, Ishmael is asked a few questions, and he and Flores drive to the area where he last saw Tara. Like the hunters, Ishmael was also put under hypnosis. Ishmael would also pick a man out of a six-photo lineup as the person believed to be the driver. Though he mentions the driver had shorter hair now. After picking the man out of the lineup, Flores tells Ishmael that he wants to meet with him the very next day to see if he can identify the truck. So they set up a time to meet at a local restaurant. But Flores never shows up, and he never answers Ishmael's calls to follow up. It wouldn't be until July of 1989 that he hears from Flores. He asks Ishmael if he'd be willing to come down to the station and help them create a composite sketch of the driver. Ishmael says, of course. In August, a story about the sketch would run in the Albuquerque Journal that describes the driver as a man between 35 and 40 years old, 5 foot 9 to 6 foot tall, 190 to 210 pounds, with reddish-brown hair, blue or hazel eyes, and two very deep wrinkle lines between his eyes and temple. Flores adds that the reason the sketch took so long was because they had to wait for the witness to be able to recall information about the driver. Ishmael's account of this day is very important to Tara's case, but in my opinion, he contributes something else entirely that would blow this case wide open. While Ishmael was talking to Flores and giving this description for the sketch, he mentioned something that he heard from his friend Jack Aguayo and his grandson JJ. While Ishmael and Jack were discussing what he saw in relation to Tara's case, JJ pipes in and he says that he remembers seeing Tara that day. He says he was hunting with some friends when he shot a sign on the side of the road and saw Tara ride by on her bike. When JJ leaves the room, Jack turns to Ishmael and says that he's pretty sure that his grandson was somehow involved in Tara's disappearance. So, let's talk about JJ Aguayo. It appears that JJ was out hunting and camping when Tara went missing. He was with another young man named Paul Zeiler. There was supposed to be a third person going with them. This third person has never been named. But JJ says that they were supposed to use this person's truck to go hunting and he bailed literally to disappear off the face of the planet and never be heard from again. So, left without a truck, JJ goes to his grandfather Jack to ask if he could borrow his truck. But Jack says absolutely not, and alludes that JJ and Paul did some drugs. So he just wasn't comfortable with them borrowing his truck. Eventually, JJ and Paul do go hunting, using a silver or gray truck with no camper. But when police talk to Paul, he says that there was no third person, he has no idea what JJ is talking about. He adds that he doesn't remember anything about JJ shooting a sign, and he has no idea who Tara was, but he definitely didn't see her on that trip. Okay, this is where things start to get a little crazy, guys, so stay with me, because we are piecing together decades of information to put this story together. Eventually, a woman comes out to say that JJ took her to a cave one time. She's not really sure if he was under the influence of something. But when they get to this cave, he begins talking about Tara, and he says that he feels bad that he couldn't do anything about what he knew about her case, because the sheriff's son, Lawrence Romero Jr., was involved. Now, in Paul's original statements, he says that he has no idea who Lawrence Romero Jr. was. This was later disputed when many people pointed out that Paul absolutely knew who he was. 
not only were Paul's mother and Lawrence Romero's senior friends growing up, but Paul and Lawrence Jr. were known to run in the same circles and party together. Here's the kicker, you guys. When the police go back to J.J. Aguayo, he's been admitted to a mental hospital in Texas. And when the police go back to Paul, he lawyers up. So let's take a moment and talk about the Romeros. Lawrence Romero Sr. was born in New Mexico. In the 1970s, he moved to Berlin thinking that it was a great place to raise a family. From there, he began working as a police officer and was eventually promoted to assistant police chief. Lawrence Sr. also owned a bar in the area. He was well-liked and encouraged to run for sheriff in 1974. And he won. When Tara Calico went missing, Romero led the case with the help of Ray Flores. Around this time, Lawrence Romero Jr. was about the same age as Tara. Several people have come forward to speak about Lawrence Jr. According to these statements, Lawrence was a known drug user, and at times a drug dealer. He was known to stay in a trailer with some type of makeshift basement underneath it. It's believed that Lawrence Jr. tried to ask Tara out several times. But as she was dating Jack Cole, she turned him down. Here's another kicker, you guys. Just two years after Tara went missing in 1991, Lawrence Romero Jr. died. There are a lot of conflicting opinions about what happened there. The press says that he died from either suicide or playing Russian roulette. Lawrence Sr. believed that his son was murdered. Either way, we don't have Lawrence Jr. to speak to in order to get his side of the story. Another important witness statement that I want to discuss is that of Henry Brown. In 2006, Henry Brown was having an issue with bees on his property that he thought were caused by his neighbor. So, he calls the police. The officer that comes out basically says, sorry, I can't control the bees. But they get to talking about Belen and the shortage of officers in the area. Then Henry asks the officer if he can tell him a story that's been weighing on his heart for the last 20 years or so. He says that his neighbor, who has only been identified as AJ at this point, called him over to his property a few houses down in November of 1988. Henry says that AJ seemed nervous and drunk, but he proceeded to show him a makeshift basement dug out underneath his mobile home. Henry says he immediately notices something that looks like a shallow grave in the dirt. AJ then proceeds to talk about Tara Calico going missing, how pretty she was, and how he'd seen her at school. Now, the thing is, AJ had apparently worked for the Belen school system, but he was fired after showing some high school students pornographic material, so it's possible that he saw Tara at school. After AJ talks about Tara and shows him this makeshift basement, Henry Brown just kind of leaves, but a few years later, he notices that AJ poured a concrete slab over the homemade basement. This is when he decides to just go over there and outright ask him if he had anything to do with Tara going missing. AJ then threatens Henry and says that if he ever tells anyone about the basement or what he said, that he'll kill him. Henry says that AJ even sent a man to his house with a gun to reiterate this threat. He said that he did report this to police, but this report appears to be missing from the case file. Henry basically tells this officer that he's 83 now, and he just wants to make sure that he did everything he could to help Tara before he dies. As the years would pass, more would come out about Tara's case. This is honestly in large part due to Melinda and the podcast Banished the Tara Calico Investigation. While Melinda was going through the case file provided by the Valencia County Sheriff's Office, she realized that many reports were missing. 
results like the reports of the hypnosis sessions, the results of the search on Jack Aguayo's ranch, and several witness statements. Luckily, one Friday evening in the summer of 2010, after a long day of looking at case files at the sheriff's office, Melinda and some of the employees go out after work. One of the employees approaches Melinda and tells her that there's someone she should talk to. She's then introduced to a woman she calls Witness One. Witness One says that she saw Tara that day. She'd actually known Tara since the seventh grade, and she was likely one of the first people to see her that morning around 9.30 a.m. or 10 a.m. Witness One was late for class and in a rush. She stops abruptly at a stop sign, causing her books to fly forward from the passenger seat to the ground. So she takes a second to pick all those up. When she lifts her head back up to the road, she sees Tara and waves. She says that she often saw Tara on this route, so this was nothing abnormal to her. Witness One looks to her left and sees an old truck with a camper shell approaching very slowly. So, being in a rush to get to class, she pulls out in front of the truck. This causes the driver to get kind of upset and give her a dirty look. Witness One said that the driver and passenger looked familiar, but she didn't know exactly who they were. So, she goes on about her day and goes to class. When she gets home, her boyfriend tells her that Tara is missing. So, Witness One is like, oh my gosh, that's crazy, I just saw her this morning, and the boyfriend was actually volunteering to be a part of the search party, so he says, you know, don't worry about it, I think we need to talk about police, but I'll let them know when I go to the search party. Officers do follow up with Witness One to take an official statement. This is also absent from the case file, by the way. But Witness One says two detectives did come speak with her, and they bring her a book of mugshots so that she can identify the people that she saw in the truck. Witness One does identify the driver and the passenger. Again, she says that they look familiar, but she doesn't know who they were. She mentions that once she identifies these two men, the officers shoot each other a glance, and they ended the interview right then and there, saying that they would be in touch should they need further information. Witness One wouldn't hear from the police again until 2010 in this meeting with Melinda. She assumed that the information she'd given just wasn't useful. But she does mention that in 1991, when she saw an article in the paper about Lawrence Romero Jr.'s death with his picture, she knew that he was one of the people in that truck. She even told Renee Rivera, who had since become sheriff. Renee worked on Tara's case beginning way back in 1996, but Witness One worked with him years before that. To her surprise, Rivera told her that he knew exactly what happened to Tara Calico, but that the people involved were just too well-connected to be able to touch. He said that he knew Tara Calico was hit by an old Ford truck, taken, raped, killed, and disposed of. He also knew that the truck was in someone's backyard covered by a tarp with the fenders taken off. Now, it's important to note here that in 2008, Sheriff Renee Rivera gave a similar statement to the Albuquerque Journal, which I have to say is a pretty serious move. Now, to backtrack just a little, please forgive me, this statement from Rivera is what made Melinda want to investigate this case. Melinda is from Belen, New Mexico, and in 2008, her mom mailed her a newspaper article about the 20-year anniversary of Tara's disappearance with this statement from Rivera. At the time, Melinda was living in LA, but she came back home for Christmas that year. While she was out with some friends, she begins talking about Tara, 
She says that in high school, they were in band together, and Tara was extremely kind to her when she was feeling left out. Melinda basically says it's just so sad that the case hasn't been solved. That's when Melinda's friends say that what Rivera said in that article was no surprise to them. Everyone in town knew what happened to Tara. So between this interaction with her friends and seeing that Renee Rivera appeared to be trying to right this wrong, that's when Melinda began looking into Tara's case. Now, I could go on to so many other witness statements. There are others that have come forward to claim that they also heard about or saw this makeshift basement. Some say that they knew that Tara was buried there, and possibly later moved to a pond or even Arizona. One man, Scott Cunningham, even said that he's pretty sure he smelt a dead body under that trailer. There are also statements about how people heard that J.J. Aguayo and Lawrence Romero Jr. were involved in Tara's disappearance, and reports about how the police refused to take witness statements for decades. If you want to hear several hours of these interviews and reports, again, I highly encourage you to listen to Vanished, the Tara Calico Investigation. This case absolutely warrants an entire podcast series. And what you've heard in this episode just scratches the surface of these statements and rumors. Ultimately, what we know is that Tara's case was handled for quite some time by Sheriff Lawrence Romero Sr. He was extremely well-liked, and those under his administration continued to spearhead the case for years to come. The entire town seems to be pretty sure of what happened to Tara. But Lawrence Romero Jr. is dead, as is Paul Ziegler and many of the witnesses. J.J. Aguayo's whereabouts are unknown. And Jack Aguayo has kind of stepped back from his original statement saying that he thought that J.J. was involved. It may seem like there's not a lot of hope in this case. There's so many people that have passed away. Who are we going to arrest? But there's something that gives me so much hope for this case. And that's the fact that the sheriff's department has openly discussed their frustration with how they know what happened. And of course, the fact that Melinda and Michelle are partnering to continue to look at Tara's case is extremely inspiring as well. Patty and John Dole spent much of their lives and their money looking for Tara. They chased down every lead they could, including every single tip they ever received from psychics. Patty was even deputized. This gave her some power that was normally reserved for law enforcement so that she could follow up on these leads and also contact other law enforcement agencies. In 2003, the Doles moved to Florida. They said that they weren't giving up, but it was time to move on. There were just too many memories in Berlin, and they'd always dreamed of moving to Florida anyway. Even in their new home, they set up a small memorial on one of their windowsills for Tara. John Dole says that Patty looked for Tara in every single cyclist she saw up until her death in 2006 at the age of 64. Tara is survived by her stepfather, John Dole, and her sister, Michelle. Melinda and Michelle continue to press on for answers and for justice after over 30 years since Tara went missing. There are still people who care very much about Tara and her case. Which brings me right to our call to action. I'd like to state for anyone listening right now that might have information about what happened to Tara Calico, that the statute of limitations for everything in Tara's case, other than her murder, have expired. 
If you have any information about the disappearance of Tara Calico, please call the FBI at 505-889-1300 or send information online at tips.fbi.gov. There is a $20,000 reward being offered for information. If you have listened to this entire episode, please take a moment to share Tara's story. Just because this case is well-documented, I can guarantee that there are people who have never heard of her or her story. You never know who might have the final piece of this puzzle to be able to finally bring charges or a resolution. As a reminder, Tara Calico was 19 when she went missing. She is a Caucasian female with brown hair and green eyes. She has a large scar on the back of her right shoulder and on her calf. She has a dime-sized brown birthmark on the back of one of her legs. She has previously had braces on her teeth and her ears are pierced. When she went missing, she was wearing a white t-shirt with First National Bank of Belen written on it, white shorts with green stripes, white ankle socks, turquoise and white sneakers, a gold butterfly ring with a diamond insert, a gold amethyst ring, and half-inch gold hoop earrings. As always, thank you, I love you, and I'll talk to you next time. Voices for Justice is hosted and produced by me, Sarah Turney. For more information about the podcast, to suggest a case, to see resources used for this episode, and to find out more about how to help the cases I discuss, visit voicesforjusticepodcast.com. And if you enjoyed this episode, please take a moment to rate and review the show in your podcast player. It really does help more people find the podcast and these cases in need of justice. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org.